Oh man, I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 18 today. And I don't know if this is just something that little boys do. I don't know if little girls do this as well, but as I was a little boy, I'd oftentimes dream of kind of these like fantasy sports teams. Uh, you, you know how it would be like, you think about baseball and you think, you know, what if you could have anybody you wanted on the same team? Maybe across different eras, right? Like, get, like... Babe Ruth on a team with Ken Griffey Jr. and Nolan Ryan and a few other people. That'd be really cool. Or maybe it wasn't sports. Maybe it was something like movies as a kid growing up in the 80s. Boy, that'd be cool. Someday they had this movie where Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and everyone else was in the same movie. And then The Expendables came out and it wasn't that great. It was not that great. But you know, 1992, something that only little boys dream of happened for the first time ever NBA players were allowed to play on the Olympic basketball team and in 1992 the dream team was formed and it was amazing on the same team you had people like Michael Jordan I'm just going to read the list of people who were on this team Magic Johnson Larry Bird Charles Barkley Clyde Drexler Patrick Ewan, David Robinson, Scottie Pippen, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Christian Leitner, and Chris Mullen. All on one team. I had the pennant in my bedroom with all their faces on it. And it was every bit as awesome as you would think. Uh, the, the, the team went through and they didn't take a single timeout in any game. Uh, the average score that they outscored people by, they, on average they outscored people by 40 what is it, 42.8 points, 43.8 points. And it wasn't just little boys who thought this was amazing. Even Magic Johnson is quoted as saying, I look to my right, there's Michael Jordan. I look to my left, there's Charles Barkley or Larry Bird. I don't know who to pass the ball to. (laughs) Boy, it was so cool. So cool. Well, I wonder, you know, just dreaming of fantasy teams and boy, who's the greatest and who would you have? I wonder if the disciples went through something kind of similar. I think last week as they, several of them got to behold Jesus and his glory on the mountain, the transfiguration there with them is Elijah and there's Moses. And, you know, I wondered if they start thinking through all the great prophets, who would be there? Who's the dream team of the kingdom? I think Jonah would be there. Are you kidding me? That rascal? No way. Elisha would be there before Jonah. You know, I wonder, as it started setting in with them, that here we are, we're, we're the disciples, and our rabbi is the Christ. Well, we're friends of the king. Where do, where do we rate in there? And they start discussing among themselves, which of us is the greatest? I don't know how that conversation went. I don't know if it was in terms of good, friendly banter, or if it started taking on little barbs, but... But what I do know is this, that it ended up being that they had a wrong view of what greatness is. And Jesus has to correct a few things about what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God. We're going to take a look at this. I'd love to have you pray with me as we open God's word today, and then we're going to jump into it. But let's pray together and just take a moment to ask God for his help this morning. God, our Father, we, we thank you so much for this day, a beautiful sunny day outside, a beautiful day to gather with church family and to worship together, to open your word together. 
God, as we come to this passage today, it is so, I'm so aware of how it's not just the disciples who got it wrong when it comes to greatness, but we, we think of greatness in the wrong terms as well. We get influenced by our culture and our society and the way that our culture views greatness oftentimes finds its way into the church where it shouldn't be. So God, as we open your word this morning, I would pray that you would help us, help us to see truth. Help us to get a better and better idea, understanding of who you are. Help us to draw near to you, O God. We need your help in this. We need you to soften our hearts, help our ears to be listening ears. And so, God, we we ask, we ask that you would help us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the Spirit. Amen. Well, I trust that you have found Matthew 18, and what I'm going to do, do today is I'm not going to read the whole passage all at once. We're going to read through it uh, piece by piece, but setting up a little bit of what's going on here, Matthew doesn't really tell us uh, where the disciples are, but what we do see in Matthew 19 that they leave their ministry um, in Galilee, so at this point they're still kind of, their home base is Capernaum. Uh, oftentimes it seems like Peter's house was really where they hung out as a group. And so probably what's happening here is Jesus has given them one more lesson before they head off into a new phase of ministry. So Jesus here has the disciples around him and the conversation comes up about greatness. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but in other gospel accounts, especially Mark, we find out that the disciples weren't too eager to let Jesus know what they were talking about. They were perhaps a little embarrassed about this fact that they were arguing about who would be greater in the kingdom. But Jesus asks them about it and they end up asking who is the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus is going to give them an answer. What we're going to find today though is in this answer, not only is Jesus going to address the question of greatness, but he's going to look at what does a community look like within the kingdom? What what is community supposed to be? And these things are connected. Now, as we read the passage today, I want us to be aware that all chapter 18 fits together in one discourse. This is the fourth of five discourses in Matthew. And it's important that we keep it together because oftentimes chunks of this get taken by themselves. And oftentimes we, we end up with a very different understanding of what the text is saying when it's not within its context. Okay, so we're going to see that. And you might find some surprises today. But I'd like to read the first four verses. And let's go ahead and jump into this. So Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus begins to do is he's redefining greatness and he's defining as childlike humility. Now the disciples are being told they have to become like children. And what trait of children is Jesus looking at? Oftentimes we look at children and we see several things uh, about them. Their innocence. Um, we see their sometimes lack of knowledge. They haven't learned everything. Um, interestingly enough, sometimes it's that they're rather unselfish. That's strange. Aren't kids selfish? Don't they say, mine? Well, they do, but it's also interesting. You know, I, I come home and I find toys in my yard. and I'm like, where'd this toy come from? Oh, the neighbor boy knew Jilly liked it. He gave it to her. Oh, where'd her scooter go? Oh, she gave the scooter to him. 
Uh, children can be unselfish. But it's not these things. It's not Jesus isn't pointing at a child's innocence. He's not pointing at unselfishness. He's not even pointing at a lack of knowledge. He's not saying you have to know nothing to be great in the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. So what is he pointing at? Jesus is instead points to a child's total dependence on others. Here's what one commentator said. This is Michael Wilkins. Uh, I wrote a commentary on Matthew. He said, in the ancient world, children were valued primarily for the benefit that they brought to the family by enhancing the workforce, adding to defensive power, and guaranteeing the future glory of the house. But they had no rights or significance apart from their future value to the family and were powerless in society. The humility of a child consists of the inability to, inability to advance his or her own cause apart from the help and resources of a parent. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. The disciples have this wrong view of greatness. They think it's personal heroism. They think that they're doing something to impress God. And, and Jesus plops a child right in their midst. And he's saying, you're missing the point. You're already children of God. Haven't you heard me talking about this? Matthew 6, he said, when you pray, don't use big words or lots of words like the pagans do. Simply come to God and address him as your father. Come to him as children. Matthew 7, he talked about how God as their father knew how to give them good gifts. And he knew what they needed even before they asked. So they're already children of God. And he's saying, you already have the status, but like children, you don't have any ability to advance your own cause. Instead, you have to approach God humbly, just like a child saying, I'm already a child. I, I, was, I, I didn't earn this. I didn't do anything to get this. I didn't live my life in such a way where God said, man, I have to have that guy on my team. I don't know what I'm going to do without him or her. No, you're already a child of God. So this is what Jesus is saying. That This is how you have to approach. This is what greatness is. So he defines greatness not as, uh, it's not defined by my abilities, but rather it's my reliance on Jesus and how much I reflect him. See, it's that humility. I completely depend on Jesus. And when I have that humility, when, I, when the gospel starts to saturate my life, it also starts to impact how I interact with others. It's not just that I'm trusting Jesus, but I actually start to reflect Jesus in my marriage, in how I work with my kids, in how I work on the job, how I interact within my church community. The gospel starts to saturate everything. And so Jesus is looking at this and he begins to speak about community and the idea of humility and community are tied together. Why? Well, I'd say humility leads to community. You see, it's pride that says, I don't need anybody else. I can make it on my own. But in humility, we realize we actually do need other people. In fact, humility also causes us to look at and say, the very apex of God's creation was mankind. And yet what was the first thing God said when man was created? It's not good that he's on his own. God from the very get-go said we need community. And so there's this idea of the disciples not one-upping each other, not comparing themselves to each other, but in humility being a community. And not just any community. I say on your study sheet, moreover, we need to be a gospel-oriented, grace-filled community where humility thrives. And we're going to talk about what this looks like. Now, the rest of Matthew 18 is going to fall into the context of community. What does a community look like where humility thrives? 
What does a community look like that where it's so saturated with the, with the gospel that we begin to treat each other differently? Well, we're going to look at this. And as I said, this all fits together as one uh, passage. We have to keep it connected together. And one of the things that oftentimes happens as Americans, we're very individualistic. So it's so common we read the Bible and we just see it's about me and God. And we read things in an individual context. And usually it's really about the group. It's about the church. It's about us. And so as we read this, we have to remember this. It's going to change a little bit of how we uh, understand the text in front of us. So let's take a look at this. What does a community look like? How do we become a community where humility thrives? Well, let's read in verse 5. Uh, Matthew says this, uh, Jesus speaking. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one, these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, what I want us to see here is this is not a verse about children's ministry. Uh, Remember the scene here. Jesus has just placed a child in front of them and told them they need to humble themselves and become like children. From this point on, in the context of Matthew 18, when Jesus is talking about children, he's talking about his disciples. He's talking about people who have childlike faith. So what's he saying here? Is he talking about giving hugs to little boys and girls? Well, that's not a bad thing to do. It's a great thing to do. But here he's talking about in the kingdom community, how do we treat one another? How, how, how do we interact as disciples of Jesus, as true children of the kingdom? And what we see here is that hospitality and protection are offered regardless of status. There's the idea that we receive one, and when we do so, we receive each other in the name of, of Jesus. We, we don't receive people based on merit. And, and, and get this, when it comes to the gospel, none of us enter the kingdom based on our own merit. None of us come into the kingdom because we had some magnificent abilities or some amazing status. Therefore, within the context of church community, this also means we, we don't evaluate people based on their merit. And that, does, that, that shouldn't determine how accepted people are. We welcome each other because, because we are all dependent and humble as children. We've all entered the same way. It doesn't matter if you're a person of great wealth or little wealth. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. And this is the thing. So often within the church, it's so easy for the values of our society and how we measure greatness to creep into the church. And this happened right away in the early church. I put James uh, chapter 2 on your study sheet. I'm not going to read it, but go look it up. James looks at the church and he says, man, these rich people are coming. You're giving them a seat of prominence. The poor people, you're giving them the bad seats, the bleachers. And this isn't what church is supposed to look like. Indeed, it shouldn't matter if you drive here and show up in a BMW or if you step off the bus. And we have both who come here and all are welcome in that way. This, this, this is the, the part of that. Now, what about the protection part? You see there that uh, Jesus talks about it, you, it's better. Uh, you don't cause the, the children to stumble. He's talking about disciples. This is a community that's intended to be a place where the humble, uh, the people who are children in their faith can thrive without being led astray. And Jesus goes on to speak about this. Look at verse 7. He says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. 
And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Here's an interesting verse that's caused a lot of discussion uh, throughout the years. And of course, like I said, as Americans, we tend to read the text as individuals. So we read this and we think about cutting off our own hands or our own eyes and saying, is Jesus speaking literally here? And certainly I think there's some individual application. I mean, after all, what Jesus is saying is uh, when you have, you know, when you're looking at life through that lens of eternity, there's some things about this life that we think are so essential that you have to have that you can't possibly survive without. That sometimes we hold on to things that we ought not to at the risk of entering the kingdom. But in this context, Jesus is still talking about the idea of community. What does this look like in community? Well, if you think about it, it's so interesting that far too often organizations tend to protect somebody that they shouldn't. They protect a corrupt leader worried about what will happen if they lose that leader. Unfortunately, this happens in churches sometimes. Too often, perhaps there's that rascal that you know, they, they're, they're a rascal, but you know they write the big checks. We can't possibly survive if we don't have their checks anymore. Or that person who has just incredible skill and, oh, they're such a good musician, how will we survive if we don't have that person? And you see what happens in the sense of community is rather than protecting The children of the kingdom, we say that person's too essential, that person's too important. And and, and Jesus is saying, no, you need to be willing to cut off things that will hurt. And by the world's standards, it it doesn't make any sense. But this is what Jesus is speaking about. So a reminder, I say hospitality and protection are offered regardless of status. Your status in this world shouldn't change how welcomed you are into church or how protected you are. When Jesus goes on here, speaking about a kingdom-oriented community, he also says this. I think it's very interesting. It's that you don't have to earn value. You already have value. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's quite a bit of value, isn't it? As a child of God, you have that status in heaven. You didn't have to earn that. You didn't do anything to earn that. That simply comes as an inheritance. He goes on to talk about this. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of the father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, here's another passage that if we take it out of the context, we might think this is about seeking the lost in the world. But within the context of community and the little ones, who are the little ones? They're the disciples of Jesus. They're the children of the kingdom. And so in this context, what Matthew is getting at here, as he quotes Jesus, is that within our community, there's value there where you don't just say, oh, that person doesn't matter anymore. Just let them go. We have 99 other people. I put on here a question, how does the idea of seeking something speak to its value? 
Well, I was thinking in the context of hospitality and things like that. You know, there's times where somebody might show up and you're kind to them, but you know, you wouldn't be too hurt if they hadn't shown up. You ever had an experience like that? Or if they don't show up, you're kind of like, oh, I'm so glad that person's not here. So you can show hospitality, but it's a whole nother thing to actually go out and actively seek somebody. And here we see that there's value, intrinsic value to being a child of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus is saying, now you, you go and seek, you seek out. Now it's interesting here because you might see it in here with this uh, section on the sheep going astray, that there is an idea of accountability here. And the next part on your study sheet we need to see is that grace and accountability are compatible. And a kingdom-oriented community, a community that is saturated by the gospel, there's still grace and there's still accountability. Now, sometimes what happens in church circles is people say things like, well, you know, uh, we're all sinners after all. Uh, Who am I to judge that person? Or we might say, you know what, whoever is without sin, let them cast the first stone. We kind of create an environment where there isn't really a lot of accountability. So how does accountability work with grace? Well, well, Jesus does say we need to have accountability, but here's the difference. Um, I say on your say sheet, the fact that we're all sinners and here by grace doesn't negate accountability. It simply alters our end goal. A kingdom-oriented community is one that seeks restoration. That's what your accountability is for. It's not for just getting rid of somebody. It's with the hopes that you would restore them back to a proper place in the kingdom. So Jesus goes on and says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What's the point? To gain back your brother, to restore. Going on in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. There's this idea here of, as a community, you're seeking restoration of people. And God entrusts certain things to the community in here. There's certain authority given to the community. This grates against us as individuals because oftentimes we view a religion in, in our country as this is just between me and God. Nobody has any say on this. And actually, Jesus has given great authority to the community, but it's not authority to harm, it's authority to restore. I want us to understand here that this whole passage, I'm not going to speak a lot about the ins and outs of it as I'm looking at broader things today. But I want us to be aware, this isn't just speaking about when somebody kind of gets under your skin or annoys you or says the wrong thing. This is talking about outright sin against you. Uh, Sometimes in the church, we do need to have thicker skins, don't we? And here Jesus is speaking about greater things. And in fact, uh, the disciples realize it because we see Peter's question. Next, Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
One of the things we have to understand about a kingdom-oriented community, a gospel-saturated community, is such a community requires radical forgiveness. If this is a community that offers restoration to people, it's going to require radical forgiveness. Because, and here's, you know, I wrote this so you can read it, but because none of us deserve to be here, there isn't really room for us to say you can't be restored. There's not enough grace for you. We can't say that. So this is an outpouring of already the humility that we are expressing that pours out into how does it influence and, and touch our community. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says not seven times, but 77 times? Well, there's a saying uh, that I want to let you know about a contrasting example. In the uh, Creos tribe of Sierra Leone, they have the saying that the sun rises twice. And by this, they mean, if you harm me today, I can always get you back tomorrow. In other words, what they're saying is there's always opportunity to repay evil with evil. What Jesus is saying is a contrast of this. When he's saying not seven times, but 77 times, he's saying there's always opportunity to forgive. He's not saying on time number 78, keep track. And when you get to 78, just cast that guy out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's always opportunity to forgive. And we got to be careful with Peter, poor Peter. And sometimes he kind of looks a bit dopey, but, you know, actually, uh, he's, he's not off here. When he offers to forgive seven times, he's actually being incredibly gracious. By Jewish tradition and rabbinic uh, tradition, uh, the most you had to forgive somebody was three times. And even that was pretty generous. There are some who said after the first time, you don't have to forgive again after the second time. But certainly there are three times, you know, don't worry about forgiving someone a fourth time. Just, you know, release them to destruction of, of God and his judgment. So Peter, in a sense, is being really, really kind. He's more than doubling it seven times. Aren't I, aren't I a very forgiving person? And Jesus says, no, there's, there's always opportunity to forgive. You see, what's happening here is Peter's still thinking in terms of his own abilities, his own efforts. And, and, and here's the thing, when, when forgiveness rests in my abilities... I'm going to be very limited in who I can forgive. This is not an easy thing we're talking about here. But Jesus begins to tell this parable, and he sees that Peter needs to, and, and the disciples in general, they need to understand this is the core foundation of making sense of all this. Why do you have to humble yourselves like children? Why should your community look like this? It's all in this parable. So let's take a look at verse 23 and look at this parable. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Jesus tells this parable and it's providing the foundation of what's going on here. And there's some very extreme and surprising things going on here. Of course, in the parable, I think we know right away who the servant represents. Represents us, me. The king is God. And in this parable, the second servant represents other humans in their relationship to me. So in Jesus' parable, the first servant's debt represents our sin against God, my sin against God, that vertical relationship I have. And the second servant's debt represents someone else's sin against me, that horizontal human-to-human relationship. And yet there's something really surprising going on here between the two debts. See, one of the things is oftentimes, sometimes our translations don't translate these monetary figures. And so they don't mean a lot to us. A denarii, a talent, what is that? And we lose the contrast. Well, a denarii was worth one day's wage. So a hundred denarii, hundred days wages. That's not a small amount of money, right? And you could calculate it different ways. You might say it's about $10,000, maybe $20,000. Maybe in a country without a middle class, maybe much less, but still a decent amount of money that the second servant owes. And yet the first servant owes 10,000 talents. Well, a talent was worth 6,000 denarii, which means 10,000 talents was worth 60 million days wages. Or putting it in today's dollars, about $6.5 billion dollars. So the surprising thing is the first debt is several billion dollars greater than the second debt. And Jesus is doing this on purpose. In fact, even talking about 10,000 talents, 10,000 was the biggest number in the Roman Empire. And it's like saying almost an infinite debt. You start seeing here the ridiculousness of the first servant saying, have mercy on me, I'll pay off the debt. He has no ability to pay off the $6 billion debt. And we also begin to see just the, how, how ridiculous it is and how staggering it is that he would be released from the $6 billion debt and then come to a servant who owes him $10,000. Is $10,000 a little amount of money? No. If it is to you, come see me. I'd like to be your friend. I don't have $10,000 to loan anybody. But still, if I was forgiven $6 billion, do you think I could forgive somebody for $10,000? I think so. And the, so the other servants see this. It's scandalous. They go report him to the, the king, and the king throws him in jail until he can pay it back. Can he pay it back? No, he can't pay it back. Jesus is comparing this to us. And, and you know, this is, when you start thinking about this, this becomes really interesting because it's saying my debt between me and God, when I sin against God, it's like a debt of $6 billion. But when someone sins against me, it's only like a debt of $10,000. But God, people can do really bad things to each other. And God, I haven't done that bad of stuff to you. I mean, are you telling me that if all I ever do is one tiny little sin that incurs a debt of $6 billion? Well, let's think about this. And I would say, yes, it does. 
Because here's how this works. I, I developed this analogy a few years ago. I use this with kids a lot. I love doing this with kids. I pull up a group of kids, and I kind of set one in front of the other and say, okay, you're a kid. You're just having a bad day at school. This is your friend. And during the day of school, you, just, you get mad at your friend, so you decide you're going to clock him in the face. What's the punishment for that? You could say, oh, yeah, go in. you're getting in trouble. The teacher's going to talk to you. Okay, so bring this kid over to the next kid. This is your teacher. And your teacher's saying, why'd you clock their friend in the face? That's wrong. You don't like how that teacher's talking to you. So you decide to clock your teacher in the face. What's the penalty? Uh, you're going at least to the principal's office. So we go to the principal's. The next kid is the principal. Principal's saying, that's really bad. You're getting detention. You might get expelled. Uh, I don't like how you're talking to me. I'm going to clock you in the face. What's the penalty? Well, you're out of school. They're probably calling the police on you to come get you. So then we go to the next kid. The next kid's the police officer. You don't like how the police officer is talking to you. You decide, I don't like him. I'm going to clock the police officer in the face. What's the penalty? Oh, you're going to jail. So here you are in jail. And your story made the news. And the president of the United States hears about it. And he comes to visit you to pardon you. But you don't like the president very much. So you punch the president in the face. What's the penalty? The kids are like, yeah, they come up with funny things. You're going to die. Oh, they're going to send you off to France or, you know, something like that. But it's, it's interesting because kids understand this concept, don't they? And we understand it in our legal system. It's not just what you do. But the penalty is often determined by who you do it to. And the more important the person, the greater the penalty is. Even though punching your childhood friend in the face is the same actual sin as punching the president, you're just punching another human being in the face. The penalty is very different, isn't it? The greater the person is. And when it comes to our relationship with God, Jesus is helping us see that we underestimate both the greatness of God and the goodness of the gospel. Why do we have such a big debt when it comes to sin? It's because the debt has more to do with who I sin against than what it is that I do. Just one little sin? Well, yes, because you're sinning against the creator God, the one who's infinite in his might and infinite in his power and infinite in his importance and infinite in his glory and majesty. You know, we, we underestimate God. I think our culture brings in all these ideas of God that we get stuck in our heads that aren't biblical. And we see God and we see this old man with a white beard. We make movies and we have people like Morgan Freeman playing God. And we, we lose sight of who God actually is. Let me just do one thing to help us here. And NASA several years ago did this experiment that's called the Hubble Extreme Deep Field. And what they did... Yeah. Can I get, oh, oh, there we go. Just was asleep. Is they looked at a part of the sky. The part of the sky they put the Hubble telescope on is that little uh, pink triangle there, or rectangle. And that's its scale to the moon. So incredibly tiny part of the sky. In fact, when you're looking at the moon at normal size in the sky, that's like the size of a pinhead. And it's a part of the sky that looks rather empty. But they put the Hubble telescope on it, and they let it sit there and expose and expose and expose, and they analyzed all the different light spectrums and everything, the things that are invisible to our eye. 
And this is the resulting picture that they found in this tiny, empty little part of space. Come on. They found 10,000 galaxies with about a billion, million stars in that little tiny part of space. The God who spoke the universe into existence, who spoke each star into existence. The Bible says he knows every star by name. He holds it all together without confusion. This is our creator, God. We underestimate him. And the reality of it is this, that none of us have done just one teeny tiny little sin, have we? We have had days where we've chosen the sin and we've enjoyed it and we went back for more. None of us is guilty of just one little sin. And you know, this is what Jesus wants his disciples to see. This is what we need to see. Any offense against God incurs a God-sized debt. And the only way you pay for a God-sized debt is with a God-sized payment. So why Jesus was so necessary that God would take on human flesh. God in the flesh would come and die for our sins. It couldn't have just been a nice guy on the cross dying for us. It couldn't have just been some guy named Bob or Bill or Joe dying on the cross for you. It had to be the Son of God. Why? Because it had to be a God-sized payment. When we have a God-sized debt, there's nothing I can do to pay for it. I'm like that guy in debtor's prison who has no ability to pay a $6 billion debt back. So what does it look like to have childlike humility, to trust in God, to, to trust in Jesus? Well, another analogy I have to use with kids is it's like you're in the ocean, out in the middle of the ocean, you're about to drown, and the Coast Guard helicopter comes, and they throw that life ring on a rope to you. And, and trusting Jesus is just that picture of me just holding on and letting the helicopter pull me out. You know what we tend to do? We do some really ridiculous things when we try to help God a little bit, where we try to bring our own righteousness into this and try to impress God. Because it's like me holding on to that life ring, and as the helicopter's pulling me out, I think I'm going to just jump a little bit to help it pull me out of the ocean. Or I'm going to look down at the water and give it a little more lift by blowing downward. It's ridiculous, right? No, it's just I'm trusting. I'm, I'm helpless. I can't do this. I'm completely relying on this helicopter pulling me out. And that's the picture we get of how do I trust Jesus? What, is, what does this look like? What does it look like to trust Jesus? You see, this is, this is why it's so important how we, we, we lose sight of who God is. We lose sight of God's greatness. We lose sight of what it means to enter the kingdom. Why it has to be by childlike humility, dependence on Jesus and that alone. But when we capture the greatness of God, when we get a glimpse of it, when we find ourselves saying, there's nothing I bring to the table, I don't impress God at all, I, I just merely have to put my trust in Jesus. And as I said, that, that causes people with humility to start living life very differently. That gospel starts to saturate me and how I treat others changes very differently. It means community looks very different. And we don't look at each other of what does that person bring to the table? Or, oh, that person's so impressive. God must be really impressed with them. No, we're, we're all in the same place. So when it comes to forgiveness, the uh, final thing there is forgiveness and community is a difficult thing. We're not just talking about forgiving mistakes or lapses in judgment, but malicious offenses. 
And such forgiveness is impossible if it rests in my strength and my ability or my generosity. I'm going to run out of it. But when I start realizing what the God who created this has forgiven me of, then to not forgive becomes scandalous. Here's where I want to go with this today. Just a few short things to wrap up here. We do need a bigger view of God. You need a bigger view of God. Last week we looked at just that capturing that idea of the the greatness of Christ, the glory of Christ that was revealed. And I ask, how big is is God in your life? Do you have an accurate view or do you underestimate him? You know, if you don't have a very big God, then your sin isn't that bad and you don't need much of a savior. But when you have an accurate view of God, then you realize the depth of sin and you realize how great of a savior you need. And I want us to think about this because when I, when I don't have a big view of God, I end up starting to trust myself for things. And get this, think about this. Everyone Jesus is speaking to in Matthew 18 considered himself or herself to be Jesus' disciple. And yet not all of them were citizens of the kingdom. See, it's one thing that to be following Jesus as he went around the countryside, but another thing to be relying on your own merit to follow him. And Jesus is saying, you guys have to become like children to follow me, to be children of the kingdom. What are you, what are you basing um, your life on? What are you relying on to follow Jesus? You know, it's very possible to be a member of a church, to identify as a Christian, and at the same time not be relying on Jesus, but be relying on your own abilities and your own righteousness. And when you're doing that, you're very far from the kingdom. So what does it look like? What do we need? What, what do I need to do when I find myself doing this? <laughs> it's to repent and say, Jesus, I need you. Help me to quit relying on myself. I simply need to trust you. I simply need to depend on you. You might find yourself needing to do that today. My final point here, I'll, I'll keep short. But the fact of the matter is this, if we all enter into this community as children, humble children, if we don't enter on our own merit, then this means that we all kind of enter on equal playing, an equal playing field and we all have something to contribute to this community. And a church community isn't one where, you know, you just rely on a few really hardworking people to make this a place where humility thrives. It depends on all of us. It's not a matter of 20% of the people doing 80% of the work, is it? So my question is, how do you contribute to community where humility thrives? As we spoke today, and it really just went by a lot of text very quickly, painted in broad, broad brushstrokes. Perhaps there's forgiveness that you've withheld. Perhaps there's favoritism that you've shown. Uh, Perhaps you've pushed back when people speak into your life. Are there areas that you need to, to clean up and address? Well, these are hard things. And, and again, this doesn't rely on our strength or abilities. It relies on us getting a greater view of God and humbling ourselves. And I want to pray for us in that respect because it requires prayer. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And I'd like to pray for us as we get ready to head out.
God, our Father, we, we thank you for this morning. I thank you so much just for a reminder, a reminder of who you are, how great you are. And God, as, as this congregation heads out each person into a different place this week, interacting with different people, I don't know what you have in store for us, but God, would you, would you instill in us a view of your greatness? Would you help us to see you more accurately? Would you humble us, Lord, and help us to have that humility that allows the gospel to saturate our lives and change how we treat our families and our coworkers and our friends and, and each other? God, I pray that you would do this because we need your strength in it. We don't say these things to beat each other up. We say these things to remind each other and press each other on towards the goal. And so, God, I would pray this for this congregation, that you would have your hand on them and that you would encourage and that you would protect. And, Lord, that you would bring us all to the place where you want us to be. Keep working on us. Keep working in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you are our Father. And you've made us your children and all the wonderful things that go into this. But, Lord, help us not to rely on ourselves. So I pray this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen. Amen.